My name is Risa Golubov, and my book is called Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change, and the Making of the 1960s. My book is about the legal history of the 1960s as seen through the lens of this little known kind of criminal law called vagrancy laws. Uh, the regime of vagrancy laws came to the United States, to the colonies actually, from medieval and Elizabethan England and proliferated all across the United States and they're used for hundreds of years to regulate, arrest, surveil, control all kinds of people who didn't fit in in lots of different ways. And in the 1960s, those laws are challenged by all those people who didn't fit in who now have social movements and lawyers and increasingly good legal arguments. And by the early 1970s, the laws fall apart. So the laws create an opportunity, the challenge to those laws create an opportunity to think about what changed in the 1960s in terms of constitutional law, what changed in terms of policing and how the police understood their jobs, and what changed in terms of America's cultural pluralism and tolerance. Vagrancy laws came in many shapes and sizes. A lot of them had very old, archaic language from the 16th or 17th century England about palmists and jugglers and people who are in plays and night walkers and brawlers. So they, they sounded very quaint. There was a judge in the 1960s who described one of the laws as like a casting advertisement for an Elizabethan drama. Um, but in general, the vagrancy laws were laws that made it a crime to be idle and poor or to wander about with no apparent purpose, or to live a dissolute or immoral or idle life. Uh, and the thing that made vagrancy laws really attractive to law enforcement officials and to local elites in various communities was um, there were two aspects of vagrancy laws that were really important. One, vagrancy laws were status crimes. Most of the time in the United States, when you do an act, you commit a crime, you get convicted of having done that act. So you steal something, you get convicted of theft or of robbery, but vagrancy laws made you a vagrant. If you were a dissolute person, you were a vagrant. And you didn't actually have to commit any particular act in order to be arrested and convicted for vagrancy. You had to be a certain kind of person. And there was an enormous discretion in the eyes of the police as to whether and who a particular person was, you know, whether a particular person was uh, a vagrant and, and who counted in that category. So during the 1960s, hippies were suddenly arrested as vagrants. In the 1950s, it was beats who were arrested. Civil rights activists were arrested. Vietnam War protesters. So whoever was threatening to the status quo, whoever was a misfit who didn't fit in, whether it was because they were a racial minority or they were poor or they were a political dissident or a nonconformist culturally, they were seen as a vagrant and there was always a possibility for arresting them under vagrancy laws. The second aspect of vagrancy laws that made them really popular with law enforcement was that they had so much in them. <laughs> they were so vague, they were so broad that the police could usually find a way to make vagrancy fit as the crime for which they were going to arrest somebody. Um, and eventually when they get struck down by the Supreme Court in 1972, they get struck down under a doctrine called void for vagueness that they were too vague to let people know that they were committing a crime and that they were too vague to let the police know who they should be arresting under that law. They didn't give enough guidance to the police and to lower level judges.
One of the things I really enjoyed about this book was the real stories of people who had been arrested for vagrancy. And what I learned as I was researching this book was how broad this regime was and how many different kinds of people were arrested. So in the book, there are stories of people like Isidore Edelman, who was a soapbox orator. He'd been a communist, but he'd gotten kicked out of the Communist Party. But he was basically a communist in his thinking. And he went to this one park bench in Pershing Square in Los Angeles every day. And he made speeches, uh, leftist kind of speeches, in 1949, the height of the Cold War. And he got arrested repeatedly for various kinds of things, soliciting funds and standing on the park bench and all kinds of things. And eventually, he got arrested as a vagrant for being dissolute. Uh, because he'd already been arrested for other things. He was now lawless and dissolute and a vagrant. He had a nine-day trial for vagrancy where people testified as to what he had said and they testified about his dissoluteness. And, um, so he's one example. A very different kind of example is a, a guy like Sam Thompson who was uh, an African-American man in Louisville, Kentucky. He was very poor. He was an alcoholic. Uh, and he was arrested when he went to the bus station to go home from Louisville. Uh, and he, you know, according to him, he went to the bus station to go home. According to the police, the bus station was where the drunks hung out. And so they saw him as a problem because he was an alcoholic, and he decided he was going to fight against his vagrancy and loitering charges. Um, beyond political dissidents and uh, people who you would think of as derelicts or vagrants, even though Sam Thompson had a home, he was still kind of considered in that category. Um, racial minorities who were out of place, either because they weren't doing the jobs that officials thought they should be doing. If they were, there was a need for African-Americans to do agricultural labor, and instead they had industrial work, they would get arrested for vagrancy and put to work on a plantation. Um, at the same time, the case that goes up to the Supreme Court in the early 1970s comes out of Jacksonville, Florida in 1969. And four of the defendants in that case are two white women and two black men out on the town in Jacksonville in 1969, and that was not okay. So they were flaunting racial mores, racial and sexual mores. Uh, civil rights activists were often arrested, hippies, beats, poor people, uh, Vietnam War protesters, other political dissidents, gay men and women were often arrested as vagrants. Uh, prostitutes were often arrested as vagrants. In part, the police turned to vagrancy laws when it was hard to arrest people for other things. So to arrest a prostitute for prostitution required undercover work to get the prostitute to solicit. But to arrest a prostitute under a vagrancy law that made one a vagrant if they were a common prostitute or a night walker was much easier. All you needed was one prostitution arrest way back when. And then anytime you saw that person out on the street, you could arrest her as a common or known prostitute. Um, and the same thing with homosexuality when sodomy laws were uh, in place and it was illegal to have homosexual sex, the police officers would send out decoys and they would have to go undercover and they would try to ferret out this homosexual sex. But if you had a, a law that said anyone who was immoral or led an immoral life or was dissolute, uh, that, that made you a vagrant, then all you had to do was go to a gay bar and arrest everyone. And you didn't have to prove nearly as much as you did for the conduct underlying the reason why folks were arrested as vagrants. There's another very large category that vagrancy laws were used for, which was in crime prevention and crime control. So because the Fourth Amendment says that the police need to have probable cause before they search or arrest someone, uh, and in the 1960s, during the Warren Court criminal procedure revolution, the court 
created the exclusionary rule, applied, well, applied the exclusionary rule across the country, and uh, the police felt very hemmed in by the exclusionary rule and probable cause, and they turned to things like vagrancy laws, which allowed them to arrest someone without probable cause, hold them for however long they wanted to, investigate the crime, figure out if this was their person. If not, so be it. And if so, uh, then they could change the nature of the charge from vagrancy to murder uh, and, uh, and, 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 and get their man. Um, so it was often called a loophole or a safety valve around the probable cause requirement. We often think of constitutional change as starting at the Supreme Court, right? That's the case we hear about. We hear about the court's arguments and the court's opinions, but that's not where constitutional cases start. They start in everyday people's lives when people decide that a law is unjust or an arrest is unjust or some interaction that they've had seems wrong to them and they think there's a legal problem and ultimately a constitutional problem. And this story starts actually in lots of different places. Um, when we do think beyond the Supreme Court, we often think about a particular lawyer or a particular organization. So you think about Brown versus Board of Education, and the NAACP decides it's going to challenge school segregation. It goes out, it finds cases, it orchestrates uh, impact litigation and brings the case ultimately to the Supreme Court. In the vagrancy law context, I kept looking for the single organization and there wasn't one because what happened here was different kinds of people and different kinds of lawyers were coming up against vagrancy laws all over the country in lots of different contexts, in the race context, in the poverty context, in the sexuality context, in the Vietnam War context. And as they did so, some of them were vaguely aware that people were doing this in other contexts. As the campaign gained steam, more and more people became aware of that. And there were certainly organizations like the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund that served as uh, nodes in a network and sent people briefs or said, oh yeah, I know someone else working on that case or had lawyers, particular lawyers like Anthony Amsterdam at the Legal Defense Fund who was involved in multiple cases across different contexts. But for the most part, the cases got originated by particular people in particular cases and then they built on one another and created a real dynamic and accumulative effect so that by 1972, when the Supreme Court finally decides to strike down a vagrancy law in this Papa Christie v. City of Jacksonville case, uh, it's pretty clear that the laws are going down. They've been struck down by lots of lower courts across the country before that moment. Uh, the Supreme Court has been facing these laws for 20 years, not sure what to do with them, hesitating about striking them down, uh, being educated, though, about how varied the different uses vagrancy laws are put to. And finally, in 1972, they strike them down. So I would say the court is at the end of the story rather than at the beginning of the story. And of course, even then, it's not the end of the story because once the court strikes down the case, uh, strikes down the law, what happens localities, municipalities go back and say, now what do we do? And they go back to the drawing board. They come up with new legislation to try to fill that space. And 
there are new attacks against the new legislation. Going forward, it means the Constitution is now on the side of vagrants <laughs> rather than being on the side of the police. Uh, and that's a really significant moment. It's not the end-all, be-all. There continues to be a struggle about how much power the police will have, how much discretion the police will have, uh, and that has constitutional dimensions still today. But I think the, the, the process of constitutional change and the Supreme Court's decision is a, a fundamental uh, pivot in how we perceive what the Constitution does and who it protects and how it protects them. When the case comes down in 1972, it is heralded as a big case, and the press notes that there are similar ordinances and laws in cities and states across the country to the one in Jacksonville, Florida, that will have to fail now that the case has been decided. At the same time, by 1972, it's so obvious to most observers and to most legal professionals that these laws are unconstitutional, that it has a, an air of inevitability. So it's both a big deal and not a big deal. Um, my favorite description of the inevitability was that uh, the case was unanimous, but it was only decided by seven justices because Justices Rehnquist and Powell had been appointed to the court after the argument, but before the case came down. And the convention of the court was that justices in that position don't decide the case. So there were a whole bunch of cases that were decided by seven justices at that time. And one of the commentaries on the case said it was unanimous of the seven justices. And even if Rehnquist and Powell had been uh, voting members of the court, it still would have been inevitable, right? It was so obvious that these laws were out of step with modern uh, American society and culture after the civil rights and civil liberties revolutions of the 1960s uh, that it, it really had an air of inevitability. Um, but as I said, at the same time, because the, there were so many of these laws and they were used so frequently and ubiquitously, it was still perceived to be a big deal. Because vagrancy laws were used to do so many things, right? The beauty of vagrancy laws is they're on the books. They're there from the 18th century, the 19th century, whenever they've put, been put there. They rarely change. They, they change some at particular pressure points, but they don't need to change. Then when the hippies suddenly start getting arrested as vagrants, it's not because somebody added hippie to the list of people who are vagrants in the law. It's because they found a way to include hippies as dissolute or wandering about with no apparent purpose or poor and idle. And so the beauty of vagrancy laws was it could be deployed by the police with no transparency, with no legislative input, with no democratic process on a moment's notice at any time against any new threat that arose. So what happens after the downfall of that kind of vagrancy law is the kind of regulatory power and policing power that existed in the vagrancy laws gets fractured. And suddenly, you have lots of different kinds of laws that have to regulate lots of different kinds of people. So the police, when they're thinking about political protesters, they're turning to disorderly conduct laws or breach of the peace. When they're thinking about potential criminals, they're now using stop and frisk from Terry versus Ohio, the 1968 case that created the stop and frisk and gave the police more discretion to arrest people who seemed suspicious. Um, when they're thinking about the homeless, uh, people are passing new laws about panhandling. They're passing new laws about sleeping on the street or sleeping on park benches. Uh, when they're thinking about sexual conduct, now they need to use sodomy laws or 
they turn to new kinds of loitering laws that are more specific. So loitering for the purposes of prostitution or loitering for the purposes of narcotics or loitering for the purposes of immoral sexual behavior. Um, so there's a whole patchwork of laws that have to be more transparent because they have to address particular kinds of conduct. And in so doing, it becomes clear which people are being targeted by those laws. And it doesn't mean that the laws aren't passed, but it does mean, I think, that there's more transparency and there's more democratic process and there's more pushback by those constituencies. Um, at the same time, the vagrancy laws made a huge target that all of these different groups could accumulate power against uh, and in certain ways work together to challenge and, and gain arguments and gain uh, momentum from one another. And once that's no longer there, all that energy splinters into its component parts and the different groups are having to focus on the particular laws that are targeting them. There are several lessons that I would say vagrancy laws demise hold for us today. One of them is about how we think about how law changes and about the power of both individuals who experience harms themselves and the power of lawyers because those are the people who create cases and shape cases. And one of the things I find so exciting about being a law professor <laughs> is teaching students how much creativity there can be in the law and how in 1952 it seemed unthinkable that vagrancy laws would be unconstitutional. They were used by every police department in the country virtually. The treatises all agreed that they were exceptional and weird but constitutional and 20 years later they're unconstitutional and how does that happen? And so I think it's it, the book started out with me asking that question, right? How does something presumptively constitutional for 400 years become unconstitutional in 20 and so I see one of the lessons really as being how does legal and constitutional change happen? What does that look like? What is the process? And I go into a lot of detail about the process because I think seeing how the process worked in the past really opens up possibilities for how legal change can happen in the future. More, more substantively, the book holds lessons about how we regulate people and how we use the criminal law or don't use the criminal law to regulate people. And there's still a lot of regulation of people around today, so I, the lesson of the book is certainly not the vagrancy laws disappear and everything's hunky-dory and everyone's equally free and uh, autonomous and, and equally empowered. I, I don't think that's the lesson. But I do think one of the lessons of the book is to remind us that change does happen and that this regime really did make it impossible for certain kind of people to walk down the street as themselves. And that's not to say that everybody can walk down the street today as themselves and not be arrested, but I think that the pervasiveness of the vagrancy law regime is something we don't know about uh, and something that's really important and that the process by which people dismantled it is really important. Um, and it's not only the regime that I think has changed, but the processes by which uh, vagrancy laws were enforced, the really complete lack of transparency uh, within police departments, the complete lack of process within lower level courts. Um, I, I don't think we're in a nirvana in either of those things. Uh, but I, So I look at something like the stop and frisk litigation in New York City today, and on the one hand, it's really dismaying because what I see is a repeat <laughs> uh, of what happened uh, under the vagrancy laws of police having a lot of discretion, of using that discretion in a discriminatory way against particular kinds of people, especially young minority men, uh, and, and thinking, 
what lessons have we learned and, and have we learned any lessons. And at the same time, the fact that we know who was arrested and when and how many times and what their racial and gender and age profile is, those are things we never knew under the vagrancy law regime. They're things we only know now because that regime required greater transparency, the end of that regime, because we said that was no longer acceptable. So. As any good historian, I think I see change and continuity, but one of the things that I would hope my book does is open up for us where we see the change, where we see the continuity, and how lawyers in the past and people and social movements have gone about trying to create change going forward. I hope people take away from the book the openness of the law and that law changes in relation to society. Uh, there's not any single causal direction. There's not any single cause. So people often want me to say, well, is it the lawyers? Is it the justices? Is it the politics? Is it the social movements? And I think it's all of those things. But I think it's permeable, right? The boundaries between law and society, uh, even calling them those two things is a, a false dichotomy because they're so intertwined with one another. But change, I think, can happen. And so I, I do hope that, in part, the story is one of empowerment, even if it's also one of sadness and dismay that we're not perfect and progress isn't linear and uh, there is no silver bullet. Um, I hope in particular in thinking about empowerment that people come away thinking about lawyers and what lawyers can do and how lawyers operate as mediators, I think, between people's lived experiences and the categories that the law understands. And the lawyers are shapers of those categories as much as consumers of them. So that's something I hope they take from it. Um, another thing that I hope people take from the book is a sense of real change in the 1960s, from the 1960s to today. I think we often forget what the world was like <laughs> in the 1950s and before. I think we forget what Jim Crow was like. I think we forget that wearing a beard uh, got you arrested, <laughs> or playing your guitar in a particular square got you arrested. And uh, although I think there are still limits to our tolerance and our pluralism, I think there's a lot more space for a lot more difference than there was uh, before the various social movements of the 1960s. I first had the idea for this book when I was writing my first book, which was about civil rights before Brown versus Board of Education. And one of the things that I looked at in that book was cases of involuntary servitude of agricultural workers in the 1940s South. And vagrancy laws kept popping up as laws that were used to arrest African Americans who were economically uppity, who were in the military or were in industrial jobs at the moment when the planters wanted them to be doing agricultural work and they would arrest them and put them on their plantations and make them uh, uh, harvest the crops. And I had in the back of my head this case, Papa Cruz v. City of Jacksonville from 1972 that I had read in my basic criminal law class in law school. And in Jacksonville v. City of Papa Cruz four of the defendants are two white women and two black men on a date, sort of, out on the town in 1969, Florida, and they get arrested. And it's clear that it's because they violated racial mores. And I thought, huh, in the 1940s, African Americans are violating racial mores because they're economically out of place. And in the 1960s, they're violating racial mores because they're socially and sexually and culturally out of place. I wonder how else vagrancy laws were used. And so I started looking, and I discovered that they were used all the time against African Americans 
minorities in, in large part and other racial minorities, but also all kinds of people who are out of place, not just racial minorities, but religious minorities, political dissidents, cultural nonconformists of all kinds. Without being Whiggish, without saying history is always progress, I think change does happen. Uh, and, and it's sometimes good, and sometimes then it reverses. And you know, one of the things that's interesting, when I started this project, um, there was no Black Lives Matter. There was no decriminalization of marijuana. <laughs> there was no stop and frisk litigation. There was no uh, release of nonviolent offenders in large numbers from prisons. And we were in a totally different criminal justice moment. We were still in the heart of the retributive turn in criminal justice. And so people's response to me was, well, even if the vagrancy laws go, all these other laws come and replace it, and then you end up with mass incarceration, and, and it's worse, not better. And I, there's still some truth to that, I think. At the same time, a few years later, we're now in this place where people have a little bit of hope. People are. Uh, really angry about a lot of what's going on in the world of criminal justice, but there's voice for it, and uh, there are cases happening, and there are social movements happening, and there are some changes that are, that are going on. And, uh, and it's interesting, you know, we talk as historians about presentism, right? And reading back into history, the present, and you know, my history is often sparked by things that happen today, um, but uh, but today changes, right? So over the course of an eight-year project, the way people have read my story has changed. And it's, I think this is a story that's always going to be relevant because there's always going to be a tension between how much power the police have and how much liberty individuals have. And that's a boundary line that's always going to shift. It's a boundary line that's always going to be in conflict and people are always going to be contending over. And this is a story about one instantiation of that boundary line and one battle over it. And I think wherever we stand in relation to that boundary and whatever moment we're in, this is a story that will have something to say, but that something might change depending on the moment that you look at it from.